Lord, we thank you for our time together tonight. We uh, are excited about time in your word together, time just being together. Lord, we don't count um, we don't count it routine or mundane when we gather or when we open this book. Um, we just pray that you will just uh, hit a square between the eyes tonight with just truth that will change lives, that will open eyes, um, that will soften hearts. And um, I just pray that all those things will happen in this people, including myself tonight. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to just take a moment to ask if there are any thoughts, questions from last Sunday's message. I know that was a um, probably a challenging thing, not for everybody, but I know that for some there may be some troubling questions. I've had a couple of emails that have come in that I'll respond to probably on the Ask the Elder blog with various questions. I just want to see if anybody has any thoughts. Y'all are like, man, what was Sunday about? Racking my brain. Oh, yeah. But if you're doing the shepherd's guide, then you're neck deep in it. You know it. So. That, isn't that a... Yeah. Right. Our Sunday night for men and functional shepherds that are here tonight, like single moms, if y'all weren't here Sunday night, boy, I urge you to listen to that thing online. It was a uh, man's a sweet time together, and it was kind of a, an awakening, kind of a, oh yeah, <laughs> this is urgent. You know, this thing called shepherding is urgent, and the work of belief is urgent, and it was a good time together. I thought I would address one question just very briefly before we climb in and just ask you to think about this for a minute, and you may have some thoughts on it. The fact that God quickens some and hardens many with the same message, how does that impact your sharing your faith? Does it impact your mindset or your approach to sharing your faith at all? Does it impact your your thoughts about how you approach it? Mm-hmm. So it may, it may have nothing to do with your method? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. There's this overwhelming man for decades, week after week, getting a beating from the pastor in the sermon, man, if you're not sharing your faith, you know, people are dying and going to hell and their blood is on your hands and there's just that week after week and me leaving, feeling like I'm such a loser. Man, there are people, hell's going to be full because I'm so sorry. And realizing that he's the saver is liberating because he goes, wait a second, it's not about my method. And really what this does in some ways is it reorients us from while still being burdened for the lost, which I hope we are, it turns us Godward more so than even the lost. I think that burden for the lost can even become God. It can become a functional God where your 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 motive in life is I'm a soul winner and I'm getting out there and I'm closing people on the man, what's keeping you from praying this prayer today? And I, I don't ever want to minimize that burden. I've seen that burden in my dad. My dad is, man, he just has a heart for the lost, and he is the um, the kind that growing up, man, I, I've seen him going out on Wednesday nights with other men and going door-to-door sharing Christ with people. And I just trust that there will be people that we'll spend eternity with that God used at that time. But there's something liberating about knowing that um, it's not about our method. It's not about how we shape the Roman road and how good we are at the faith outline and that thankfully God, someone's eternal destiny will not depend on how well I preach. That's what liberates me. It will not depend on how well you share your faith. Scott, or no, maybe it was Mark, or maybe it was Scott. Scott told me the sto- a story of a youth conference he went to where he heard this youth group. Scott was leading worship at this conference, and he heard this youth leader speaking to some of his youth because they were loud they were kind of cutting up at the end of the sermon where they were um, kind of doing the altar call. And uh, they were cutting up, and he really came down hard on them and basically 
address them with the, the thought that maybe those people that were around you couldn't hear that altar call and maybe they will be in hell because you were loud and noisy during the altar call. I, yeah, imagine that kind of putting that on a youth. Here you go, youth. What does that do? It just really, it just gives footing to guilt. Well, I want, it just, man, it gives purchase. You know, guilt finds purchase in that sort of message. But there, there's some encouraging passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that I think really give, um, give evidence to what we're talking about, how these sort of truths should impact your approach to sharing your faith. Chapter 2, verse 15. I'm going to start with verse 14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That's a good picture of what God is doing. God is reaching those lost. He's finding lost sheep. He's gathering elect from the four winds through the work of the cross, through His people who are spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we, those fragrance spreaders, just... Just like, just envision Mary with her nard that filled the whole household when she broke that alabaster vial and anointed his feet and head. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Just envision from last Sunday's message, from those who are being softened and those and quickened and those who are being stiffened and hardened to the gospel. Get it, get it out of my face. We are the fragrance or the aroma of Christ to God among both groups of people. To the one, we're a fragrance from death to death. Those are the ones that are being hardened to the gospel. To the others, we're a fragrance from life to life. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That's what these sort of truths should do to us. They should liberate us to speak in Christ and speak of Christ with reckless enjoyment. <laughs> I mean, that, that should be evangelism. So evangelism class is less, here's the faith outline, and it's more, here's the gospel. Here's the cross. Let's enjoy him together and knowing that that's going to change people to where they take that out, the doors, and where that invades cubicle, Neighborhood, living room, uh, dinner table, it invades everything. So it's kind of like if, if we're working toward building a bunch of evangelists, we'll never get there. If we're working toward being as a people a bunch of worshipers, then proper evangelism happens. It's a byproduct of it. So, I don't know. Is it, uh, I think that should impact everything. It, it, it takes our heart of evangelism from being driven by guilt to one that's really um, fueled by worship. Instead of being driven by guilt, it's fueled by worship. And we can trust that his people gathering work is about its work as we're enjoying him in the gospel and his Christ, our Christ, out loud. And that he's gathering his people from the four winds. And um, there, there's a story about Paul that I'll share with you briefly. It's in Acts 18 that I think can impact kind of the way we think about what we're doing here in Greenville. Acts 18, um, starting in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I'm not, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius. I'll joke around. Whiteus. It's really Titius Justice. A worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. To Paul's discouraged. Okay, basically. He's trying to reach these guys, and they're not responding. A few are, but he's discouraged. So the Lord said to Paul one night, he goes over to Titius Whiteus' house to be encouraged in the faith. Titius is a believer. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. 
for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Basically what he's saying is keep on preaching, keep on enjoying Christ out loud, for I have many in this city that haven't smelt the aroma yet, but when they do, they're going to go, life. He's saying keep on enjoying Christ out loud, for I have people in this city that I'm gathering through your work. So how should these sort of truths impact our, our evangelism and our sharing our faith? They should just liberate us to share with enjoyment. Man, we're enjoying Christ out loud. We can't scare anyone away from Christ with our uh, method that God is the saver through and through. So, man, that's liberating. It's freeing. Like, man, we're let out of prison. Enjoy Christ and, and don't worry about uh, whether you can scare someone away from Christ. Okay, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. I have a couple of thoughts I want to share with you. We're really going to pick up in verse 17 tonight. But I want to, want to um, share a few thoughts about verse 15 before we really begin on verse 17. For the sake of context, I'll read the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Before we climb into 17... Just share a brief thought on verse 15. This passage I shared last week is called the Proto Euangelion, which means a prototype for the gospel. Okay, this is the earliest picture of the gospel in our Bibles. And basically, what happens, some of the, the consequences for the serpent is I will put enmity between you, serpent, and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's offspring's head and offspring's heel. Okay, so that's, that's some of the consequences there. Scott was talking with me today, and um, Scott asked me if I recognized something that he was chewing on, and I hadn't seen it, but it was so profound, I thought I would share with you. Scott thought about the consideration that God has ordained a tension between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. And that, you know... Like sharing our faith, we might think, well, it's about my method. I must be doing something wrong when, in fact, they may be the offspring of Satan. And that's, it's a God-ordained tension from the very beginning. And there's this mindset that I hear often, man, I, I just want to avoid conflict. <laughs> my goal in life is to avoid conflict. And the reality is you cannot run from God's design. He has ordained conflict in this world between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. First Peter is a pretty good passage that we've looked at before that has a few references in there about not being surprised. I'll just share a couple of thoughts with you from First Peter. 
verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you face trials. And he's just been talking about interacting with those of the world. So certainly these trials have at least something to do with interacting with those who are not of God. Those who are involved over in chapter 4, verse 3, with sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So that's some of what he's talking about here is these consequences. that Don't be surprised at these fiery trials. He's built this into our system. This is the way you won't find a place that's free of conflict and that's free of uh, these sort of issues. And this is just a side note that I was thinking about. When conflict abounds in the church, it means that there's a lot of the world in the church. Conflict happens because we are still human and it, it will happen. But God's people should be a unique place of harmony and peace. Because we are free of these sort of things, or supposed to be. And you may wonder why the elders take the time to sit down with every family before they join this body. It's for that purpose. So we can try and prayerfully seek the Lord's face. Is this person know the Lord? Is this person walking with Him? Does this person seem like they're offspring of Eve? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if so, then... We're hopefully talking about a place that will just perpetuate that harmony and perpetuate that peace. And when these sort of conflicts that we've, we've all probably experienced, if you've been in the church any period of time, it's, it's going to be tied to sin and worldliness. It's going to be. And um, I'm not saying that we won't ever go there, but, man, the Lord has really kept us um, really conflict-free for a wonderful four years, and that we should prayerfully search His face and beg Him to continue that. And um, ultimately pray that he will keep us like uh, just a, a people that are, have integrity in the word and in Christ. Let's look at verse uh, 17 back in Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> and to Adam, now we've already looked at the consequences for the serpent. We've looked at the consequences for Eve. And now we're going to look at the consequences of the fall for Adam. And to Adam, he said... Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, let me start with the question. What was Adam guilty of? Apart from eating a piece of fruit. Okay, specifically. Exactly. Okay, I mean, everybody was right. Nobody said a wrong answer, but that's really what I was looking for. It Right here in this first verse, in verse 17, because you've listened to the voice of your wife... And have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat. you got two voices there. Two competing voices, really. Where Adam listened to Eve more than he listened to God. And I'm going to tell you right now, men. We've got to be about listening to our wives, men. But if you listen to your wife more than you listen to God in the leadership of your family. Then you're in trouble. And a man's got to be tuned in to God. A man's got to be eating this book. A man has got to be feasting on the Word. He's got to be teachable. He's got to be engaging the Word. There's no room. Man, I've picked on guys that have said, and there may be people in this room that I've made fun of before for saying this. I'm not much of a reader, and that just doesn't fly for a man. It better not, because that would be like the guy on Passover night where he's got the blood of the Passover lamb there. He's got the hyssop branch. The destroyer is coming at midnight, and him saying, I'm not much of a painter, and him not slathering up the doorpost and the lintel. You're like, are you kidding me? You better get busy reading. You know, the picture of the man that walks in with the woman, that she's got that big doily-covered Bible with the handles. 
with a highlighter poking out of the end of it and the little tabs. You know, that thing's just beaten and bruised. She's been eating that thing. And the guy that's just kind of got his hands in his pocket, like, where are we going for lunch today? <laughs> Does this guy talk very long? Man, that is just unmanly. Man is most manly when he's walking with the Lord. And that sort of picture is something that uh, should be encouraged and, and um, challenged. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you see any repeated words used here in this passage, really verses 17 through 19? Or what repeated words stick out to you? Okay, what else? Eating. It's used five times or five different uh, uses of a word that's eat or eaten or some derivative of that. It's used five different times, and the emphasis is that you ate wrongly, and now you're going to eat painfully. That's even what he says. In pain, you will eat. You ate wrongfully, and now you're going to eat painfully. What does that tell you about God? If we get to know Yahweh through our Bible... What does it tell you about God and his character? Punishment fits the crime. What is that a picture of? Justice, exactly. He's a just God. Man, you eat wrongly, so now you're going to eat painfully. Man, there's beauty in that. It's just so simple. It's so beautiful. It's so appropriate. It's just like God. Okay, now what else does it tell you about God? Okay, the fact that they're going to eat it all. That's a great point. I didn't even bring that up. Very good. Okay, where, where was I? Very good. My thought was just almost the flip side of that, yet they, they live together. He's merciful, but at the same time, he's exacting. You know that, man, the... the movie sort of the world presentation of God is the Morgan Freeman and uh, George Burns and you know kind of the grandfatherly sort kind of yucking it up you know sitting around in his old man t-shirt and enjoying a good stogie and come on up in my lap you know he's kind of forgetful <laughs> man this God is not forgetful he doesn't miss a thing he is exacting and he's just and how, what, what, what attribute of God do, does, no, what attribute of God is the origin of his justice and his precision in his being exacting in that justice? Holiness, exactly. If he were forgetful, he wouldn't be holy. Because he, I mean, he, essentially he's turning a blind eye to sin. We've got to, man, that whole backdrop that I was talking about behind that painting, that Beautiful white rose painting that I was talking about on Sunday. That whole backdrop, in within that backdrop, that pitch black backdrop, is his exacting justice. We cannot even see that rose of grace of the work of Christ without knowing that we are doomed. That's propitiation. That word that so few Christians know that every Christian should know. That Christ became a wrath absorber for us. That we wronged a holy God. We're standing in front of a holy God. Do his wrath. Because he is holy. And he is just. And he is rightfully exacting. And the fact that he has another step in our place. And absorbed that wrath. That's the picture of what Christ has done. But you cannot appreciate what Christ has done as Savior and Lord. Unless you see that he stepped in your place and absorbed your wrath. Good, very good. The very ground, now he was given dominion over earlier in the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse uh, 28 through 30. <clears throat> the very ground that he's given dominion over, he is now subjected to. The very creation that he's given dominion over, now he is subject to. In its curse and in his eventual return to it. Here's the picture before the fall. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. He had dominion before the fall. And he lost that after the fall. Or he was subjected to this earth that he had so much dominion over. Now, in light of that, what would this make New Testament miracles be? What, what, if you considered New Testament miracles where people are snake-bidden and they don't die, or where people are healed and they get their sight back, things like that, what, what would New Testament miracles be in light of this reality that before the fall, man had dominion. After the fall, he did not. What does that make New Testament miracles? Well, yes, normal meaning as in pre-Genesis 3 things. They're glimpses of dominion. That's the cool thing about New Testament miracles. They're really, they're, they're pictures and snapshots of man having dominion in that moment, or Christ demonstrating his dominion as he's walking on the high seas, high step in the Sea of Galilee, with true pictures of dominion. It just changes the whole picture of New Testament miracles where you see them as snapshots of man being restored to dominion, and who is that through? Christ. (laughs) That's the cool thing about those New Testament miracles. Now, the tone of this whole passage that I read, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. The tone. Let's talk about that for a minute. What sort of words in that three-verse section come to mind when I ask you about tone? Pick out three or four words there that are really prominent words. Cursed. Okay, good. What else? Pain. Okay, good. What else? Toil, good. What else? Huh? Commanded, okay. What else? There's another word I'm looking for. Because? Okay. All right. What else? Starts with S. It's the one I'm looking for. Sweat. (laughs) For me, the the tone, well, and something else that's not really in the words there, but it's kind of the tone, is the minimal reward for your labor. Work. Toil, pain, sweat, and cursed. And what I want you to see here is I want you to appreciate the connection between fruitfulness or fruitlessness as dependent on man's relationship with God. Okay, there's a very clear picture here of fruitfulness or fruitlessness depending on man's connection with God. Now, I'm going somewhere in a moment, and I want you to go with me on this journey to consider the health and wealth gospel. Okay, I want to show you a few pictures here. First of all, I want you to know time and time again, God characterizes blessing with abundant harvest and a compliant earth. Okay, I'll show you Genesis chapter 4 verse 12 is a good picture of the flip side of that. Genesis 4 verse 12. We're going to look at three different passages of Scripture to kind of build this picture of fruitfulness or fruitlessness depending on the relationship with God, the Creator. Here's the first one. Genesis chapter 4, verse 12. God is speaking to Cain, who's murdered his brother. It says, When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. You're working the ground, and it's no longer yielding its strength to you. And that's because he's, what, crossways with God. Okay, so that's a picture of fruitlessness, depending on his relationship with God. Now let's look at fruitfulness. Turn to Leviticus chapter 26. When this little development hit me that was not really part of any sort of commentary that I read or anything like that, and it was just a most delightful picture, the sequence of truths that unfolded from these next few verses that I hope that you're as uh, delighted as I am. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 3 God is promising both 
blessings or consequences for the nation of Israel depending on how they interact with him. Starting in verse 3, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. Okay, now just think about being a farmer in these next few minutes as you hear these words. What we're talking about is fruitfulness or fruitlessness depending on your relationship with God. And imagine being a farmer. So you're hearing rain, good. I like rain, okay? And the land shall yield its increase. Very good. I like it. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Very good. Man, we're seeing the earth just cooperate when you're in fellowship and obedience with him. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. So in other words, you're not sitting idle waiting on anything to happen. Man, you're either harvesting or reaping. Man, you just got it going on if you're a farmer. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will remove harmful beasts. Basically, it goes on, more blessings, blessings, blessings. And then in verse 14, here are the consequences if you're not in fellowship with me. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Look at verse 20. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Man, this is so Christ-exalting here in these next next couple verses. I just, man, all afternoon I've been really excited about y'all seeing this. Deuteronomy 11, beginning in verse 13. Here's another promise, a picture of fruitfulness. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Then take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship then. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. That's both pictures, the flip side. It's just a shorter version of what we just saw in Leviticus. Now, turn to Mark chapter 10. I shared this with the shepherds um, Sunday night. As you're turning there, here, here's another verse you can read tonight on your own. Joel chapters 1 and 2, if you want to. More pictures of fruitfulness or fruitlessness based on obedience or disobedience, based on fellowship with the Lord or with God or, or not. So there's grounds here. Somebody could really take these verses that I just shared with you and preach away with a health and wealth gospel, couldn't they? Oh, yes, somebody really could. But it's not the full counsel is the issue. Man, they could preach away. Man, if you do this, then you're going to have all the stuff you could possibly want. Things are just going to go your way. It's going to be like that song on the sunny side of the street. Everything's just going to, lights will turn green. (laughs) I mean, you name it, everything's just going to work out great. Okay, now, if y'all have been reading much of your New Testament, you know that those who followed Christ, the disciples proper, would that be true? Man, they were either crucified or disemboweled or crucified upside down or had their heads cut off. Or you know, I was talking about Sunday that the special plan for our lives might mean that we go share the gospel with a bunch of cannibals and be eaten for the glory of God. That's not exactly, um, that doesn't necessarily fit with what we've just read. So what's the difference? I want to show you this picture in Mark chapter 10. Beginning in verse 17, this is the story of the rich young ruler. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Okay, he's disheartened by the statement. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What you've got to realize is this is a Jewish guy. This guy, if he's read his Old Testament, he's read all those passages we just read. And his understanding is that I've got all this money and all this stuff because of God's favor. Because I've been obedient to God. You're asking me to give up God's favor for you, a pauper, and to come follow you with nothing? It was troubling for him. That was the problem. And in fact, that's why the disciples were so surprised and amazed at what what happens next. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. I mean, they're like, huh? That's the Jewish message. A bunch of stuff means that God is blessing you. Remember all the verses we just read. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There's no one who's left house or brothers our sisters, our mother, our father, our children, our lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions. <laughs> with persecutions. Uh, well, what, that's kind of a weird thing to throw in there. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is so Christ-exalting right here. Because this points to the difference between this Old Testament picture of stuff, rains that open, or the skies open when you need it, trees that are just drooping with fruit, stalks that are falling over with full harvest. You know, you're harvesting when it's time to, to reap somewhere else. I mean, just this ample picture. The reason that the rich guy went away sad, because Christ's message was, all those things pointed to me. So you've got to be willing to leave all those things, all those pictures, those things that were Old Testament tutors of riches and recognize that I'm the answer to those things. I'm the culmination of those things. All those things pointed to me. <laughs> all those things, you know, he talks about being the living water and you think about the heavens dumping. I mean, he talks about all these things that he is, that he fulfills. He fulfills the Old Testament law. And you got to appreciate that the difference between the reason that we can't uh, agree with this, this uh, health and wealth gospel, <laughs> that if we're obedient, that we're going to have all the stuff we need and we're never going to get sick and everything is going to go our way and the lights will all turn green, is because the difference is our Lord. All those things that we ever need, every, riches, every bit of riches that we ever need is now realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the relationship that we have with Him. That's the difference between the Old Testament picture of riches and blessing and our New Testament picture of riches and blessing that might mean, right here, was it, wasn't it weird to you that mixed right in the middle of this is persecutions? He named all those things, and then he said, with persecutions. Wait a second. And that's why all the disciples were like, man, that's confusing. <laughs> I don't get that. We've got to get that. So we've got to appreciate that God's blessings made not involve you getting a, a bigger pay raise or a better job. I mean, it may involve you selling everything you own and go moving to preach to the cannibals and being eaten for God's glory. Well, a real interesting explanation of, an, of one aspect of this passage when it talks about the eye of the needle. Mm -hmm. So a couple of paces, immediate left, and immediate left again. So 
That's good. Yeah, that's good stuff. All these million tutors of things that we just read. Genesis 4, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 11, Joel 1 and 2 are all tutors along with a million other things that point to Christ and the riches that we have in Him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, I'll just read for you briefly. You don't need to turn there. It's just a passage that came to mind as I was thinking about our riches, our riches in Christ. Colossians, the first chapter of Colossians is one worth uh, spending time on. It says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The rich, our riches are Christ in us. Now, if we lived on a street for the rest of our lives, we'd still be rich in Christ. We, uh, I told some a couple of years ago, we went to Germany with our family, and uh, we, were, we were focusing on a, a specific neighborhood. It's called Mulheim. It was primarily Muslim. We were going to sh- share Christ with them and prayer walk and things like that in Mulheim. And when I was sharing with my family and friends what we were doing, people had this vision of poverty. And they thought, man, they really need the gospel. The poverty means that you need the gospel. Some of the poorest neighborhoods in the world may be the most Christ-enjoying, Christ-savoring neighborhoods in the world. We have this picture that poverty means that you must need Christ. And it may be the richest neighborhoods that are most void of Christ. So that we, the people of God has got to, have to, got to separate stuff and physical blessing from what we have in Christ. We have to be intentional about saying whether I have a bunch or whether I have nothing, I've got everything. In Christ. That's the point of it. Okay. What does the man experience in this passage? This, uh, let's go back to Genesis 3. What does the man experience that the woman experienced? Look at it. It's one word that the man and the woman have in common. Pain. Right. The woman experienced pain in what? Childbearing. The man experiences pain in toil. And you need to know that the work itself isn't painful. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's before the fall. Work is good. We were made for work. You might have this thought that someday in heaven, man, we're going to go to be with the Lord. And, man, it's going to be flowery beds of ease. And people are going to be feeding us grapes or somebody, not people, but. Maybe some sort of angelic beings will be fanning us. And, or maybe we won't even need a fan, but we'll just be lounging around all the time. I think we're going to be working. He made man to work in the very beginning. And the pain is not from the work itself. The pain is from the kind of relationship that man has to the earth, that the earth is cursed. It's kind of this relationship that man has with the earth that is one step forward, two steps back. And uh, something that came to mind to me, for me, was uh, entropy. Has anybody studied entropy before? We've talked about that frequently. It just comes up a lot. It's the second law of thermodynamics that basically entropy is that things go from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. They have to be influenced in order to either maintain that high state of order or go to a higher state. Things don't evolve into a higher state of order on their own. Which is so funny that entropy is so well accepted by the same people that oftentimes are professing evolution. Evolution is the opposite of entropy. It's saying that things are evolving in a higher state of order. But here's, here's an example. My desk that I straighten up every two or three months, whether it needs it or not, in my office, and I get in there and I'm serious and I straighten that bad boy up. And it goes from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. Just naturally. I don't even have to influence. It just happens. Your car, if it's not maintained, and even if it is maintained, 
is going from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. Your body is going from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. Now, you might be on an exercise program, and you're going to postpone that a little while or something like that, but the reality is we're all in a, play, in a, in a, in a, a, a status of decay, a state of decay. I know that's bad news for you, but unless you're a kid, I think kids kind of up to a certain age are, are not decaying, but um, the rest of us probably are in a state of decay. And that is as a result of this earth, this, these, this earth that's fighting back and uh, our entropy that we're experiencing. And he says, by sweat you'll eat bread and die. Now that's my version, my summary of uh, verse 19 of chapter 3. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. My summary of that is, by sweat you'll eat bread and then you'll die. Now, I love looking for Christ in the Old Testament. He's all over it. So I want to ask you a question. Where else do you see sweat? Where? Okay, before that a little bit. In the garden. Let's turn there. Keep your finger in, in Genesis because we're coming back there. But I want to show you this picture. When you start looking for Christ in the Old Testament, you just find Him all over the place and you really see His work and you see an integrity to your Bible. Luke chapter 22, this was one of those surprise blessings of seeing this connection. Luke chapter 22, verse 41 And he withdrew from from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Okay, where else do you see bread? Let's think about that. We're going to make a connection between these things here in a moment. Where else do you see bread? Okay, Passover? Yeah, good. Yes, I'm the bread of life. Turn to John 6. Keep your finger over in Genesis still. Turn to John 6. Look at verse, uh, beginning in verse 32. There's a few passages I want you to see just in this chapter. This is kind of a bread chapter. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The the manna, the Old Testament picture of manna in the Exodus, that was just a a type. That was, remember the vehicle and tenor thing from a few months ago? That was vehicle with the tenor being Christ, being the bread. The Old Testament manna was just a type of something to come. And that thing to come is this Christ, who is the real bread, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You think he's trying to make a point there. (laughs) Now, I want you to see the connection between sweat and bread and death and Christ. Our bread, as a consequence of the fall, is earned by earthly work. Which, a picture of that is sweat. Right? I mean, we sweat to earn a living, don't we? To scratch one out. That's the word I like to use. Scratch one out. That's the picture. We sweat in earning that and to earn our bread. And then what happens? What happens to us? We die. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There you go. Bam. Yeah. That sounds like the Ecclesiastes picture, you know, just kind of the futility of life, man. Uh, We sweat to earn our bread, and then we die. We sweat, we eat, we die. Bad news. But there's another bread that's not earned by our sweat. There's another bread that's earned. That's the bread of life that's earned with his death, and it results in our life. 
picture is that he sweated, we eat, and we live. Man, isn't that beautiful? What was lost there in Genesis chapter 3, the consequences of what was lost, is restored and even improved upon in Christ. Before, without Christ, we sweat, we eat, we die. With Christ, he sweated, we eat, and we live. Now, verse 20. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, Adam's naming of Eve indicates that he believed God. Basically, God said that through her offspring will come someone who will crush the head of Satan's offspring. And he believed, he reflects that he believes her, believes God in what he named Eve. What he named Eve means, or Eve means uh, mother of all the living, okay, or life giver. Okay, in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What were they wearing before? I'm talking about the very beginning. They were naked. N-E-double-K-E-D. That's the southern version. Buck naked and they didn't care. They loved it. They didn't know any different. But then after they sinned, they sewed what together? Fig leaves, man. We talk about a comical picture. Can you imagine seeing a couple of naked people in the woods trying to sew together some fig leaves to cover themselves? Fig leaves. I mean, that's like... uh, I mean, that's just pitiful. I mean, because fig leaves are going to dry out, right? They're not going to stay supple and moist and pliable for long. And they're sewing those things together, trying to cover themselves. And that pitiful picture is the picture of man trying to cover his own guilt. We can't cover our own guilt. Someone's got to intervene. And God has got to intervene on our behalf. And that's what God did. God clothed them. He covered their guilt, and how did he do it? By the blood of another. It's the gospel right there at the very beginning. He covered their guilt by the blood of another. Man's attempt at covering our guilt is embarrassingly insufficient. (laughs) But God does it effectually and efficiently. Keep your finger in Genesis and just quickly look over at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 25, excuse me. Matthew chapter 25, verse 36. Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me, and I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Basically what he's doing there is he's encouraging. The picture of faithfulness is clothing the sick, clothing those or taking care of those visiting the sick and visiting those who are imprisoned. But the picture of clothing the naked is encouraged because it's like what God has done for man. So if you think about it, if somebody has a physical need and you're meeting that need, what you're doing is you're following God's lead. And you're mimicking, really, in a picture of obedience, what God has done for us in the gospel. That should encourage you to be tuned in to who has a need. <laughs> or where's, where's a need I, I need to meet? It also ought to convict you if you're in a place where you're so overwhelmed by debt that you can't meet a need. Really, you're on the receiving end of that need. That your hope and prayer ought to be, Lord, by your grace and mercy, work me out of this situation so I can be on the giving end of someone else that has a need so I can mimic and copy what you've done for me in the gospel. That's the excitement of giving in somebody that has need. Okay, back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, this man has come, or the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The us there in verse 22 refers to the heavenly court, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, the plurality of the Godhead. Also, this next, uh, I just ask you to consider this. What would have happened if God had left them in the garden? Or what could have happened? What other tree remained in the garden? Tree of life. What would happen if in their fallen state, their cursed condition, if they're eaten from the tree of life? 
eternal decay, eternal entropy. This is a picture of grace from the very beginning. It would mean that they would be in an eternal, eternal state of decay. This is early grace that He kept man from the tree of life. This is a blessing. His eviction, His evicting them from the garden is a picture of blessing. Because without death, there could be no redemption. There could be no cross. Without death, we would have no opportunity for a new life. So God, in evicting them, was actually protecting them. Awesome. (laughs) So death, in some ways, is blessing because it gives us hope for new life. Verse 24, our last verse, chapter 3. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life, or the way to the tree of life. We were created in the garden for a cool-of-the-day sort of relationship with God. And here we are, after the fall, as a consequence of sin, driven out of the garden. (laughs) It just looks like a herd of cattle. Get out. Beat it. Get out of this garden. And again, looking for Christ in the Old Testament. Is there any other picture that you can think of? God driving man out of the garden? Turn to John chapter 2. A couple other passages you can jot down if you want to look at tonight. Psalm chapter 78, verse 55. Psalm 78, 55. And Joshua 24, 18. Pictures of God driving out the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the, all those ites out of the land, the promised land, the place where His people would dwell. God is in the habit of driving out the wicked. He drove them out of the garden. He drove them out of the promised land. Now look here in John chapter 2, verse uh, 15, or 14. I'll start in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. A picture of corruption, these guys. A picture of the wicked. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. The temple is a picture of a place where God dwells with man. He drove them out with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their table. Jesus is just like Yahweh in terms of his character. He's driving out the money changers out of the temple. We're driving out the wicked. Does anybody have any last-minute thoughts? I went over just by a couple of minutes, and I don't want you to keep you. Actually, I'm, we're probably about a minute over. Okay. Anybody have any thoughts or questions? Anything that they're chewing on that hit them funny tonight? Or? The whole tree? I think the picture of leaving the tree is the tree of life comes up again in Revelation. And the picture is that God's people will now have access to the tree of life. There's actually a, picture, a verse in Revelation that talks about His people through the work of Christ, the Lamb that was slain, that now will have access to the tree of life. So it's kind of like in Him leaving the, the garden, leaving the cherubim, guarding the entrance, and the tree still in the midst of it, that the people of God, the offspring of Eve, are sitting and going, okay, we're ready. You know, we're ready to go back in. And really, the, the entrance or re-entrance to the garden was earned by Christ. Yes, yes. Well, really because of the reward of Christ, that we are almost the gift given. You know, and he even says this, that we've been given to him. His high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus thanks the Father for those who have been given to him out of the world. So it's almost like it's his reward that we as his people are his blessing, are his gift. That's pretty convicting right there, isn't it? Serious conviction for really the pursuit of holiness and being a beautiful bride. Good question. Very good question. Well, Genesis 3 was a, was a, a, a lengthy but worthwhile study. I hope you got some nourishment out of it. I think from this point on, as we get into these narratives, that it's going to move quicker. We won't go verse by verse as much as we'll go paragraph or narrative by narrative. And um, just keep in mind, over the rest of this Genesis story, 
you're going to see Eve's offspring and you're going to see Satan's offspring. Cain and Abel sort of picture. Noah and the rest of the world sort of pictures and contrast throughout the rest of the book. Beautiful, beautiful first three chapters. Man, Christ is all over it, isn't he? He's all over it. Okay, well, let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this sweet time we've had together tonight in this rich, rich book. We thank you for uh, revelation of Christ, even from the very beginning. Um, Lord, we just pray for purchase. Just pray that these sort of truths will find a home in us, and they will just undo us with awe and wonder and just enjoyment of your story and your design and your plan from the, even the foundation of the world. Lord, we are so thankful that uh, you've given us this book. We're so thankful that you've given us the Spirit to uh, interpret and expose and explain. And uh, just pray you'll find us uh, enjoying and savoring and wondering. Uh, Lord, you're so incredible. You're so awesome. You're so graceful and merciful and so just and holy and mighty all at the same time. And we thank you and recognize that the difference in um, what has made the difference in our case has been Christ and his finished work alone. And it's by his work and in his cross and his empty tomb that we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Y'all have a great night.